no one in this room or listening to this message or reading this passage of scripture that truly knows you as a born again believer that is not crushed by just the reading of this. He's pronounced innocent over and over and yet there is no stopping it. He is headed for the cross. Godless men that parade themselves as religious leaders cry for him to be murdered. And yet, Lord, in the throngs of those cries, we hear our own voices at times. Our own sin nailed him to the cross. And so, Lord, as we read the account of Jesus dying on behalf of us, Lord, it becomes very personal. It is not just a story, a movie, not just something that uh, is a part of history, Lord. This is our life. We have nothing outside of the work of Christ. So Lord, we pray that the word of God would fall down on us, rain on us, Lord, grip us this morning. And may we be strengthened to be zealous, to be determined to live lives for Jesus, Lord. We beg of you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Anytime you spend a little time around Jesus, particularly through his word, there's several things that happen. If you're a true believer, you quickly find comfort um, from his perfect ways. But in that comfort, there's a mixture. There's a mixture of comfort and brokenness. And that's because of our sin. See, true believers understand that we were those who, who caused Christ's death. And when we look at this and we study Christ and we study particularly his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection, we begin to realize that though our sins are forgiven and we understand that, there still is a, an amazement to it. There's still a gripping when you read this passage. Many of us have known Jesus as a personal savior for many, many years. And this story never gets old. It grips us. In fact, I would say the older we are in our faith, the more gripping it is. The more you've had time to challenge your own life with your own sin and, and, and the magnitude of the payment that Christ made for you. Young in our faith, we simply sometimes are scared of hell. We've come to some kind of grip that we're a sinner, but we don't see the magnitude of it. And that's okay. That's where we are when we're received into the kingdom of God. But the more you wrestle with this and wrestle with the fact that the Father threw his entire weight of wrath towards Christ on our behalf, it's gripping. Everything's coming at him. Every punch, every thorn, every nail is the Lord judging Jesus for our sins. And this is because there was only one way to justify you and me. So you have to be right, you have to be holy, you have to be justified to stand in the presence of God and spend eternity in heaven. You can't get there because you were a good person, because you were born into the right family, you attended church, you gave alms and prayers and did all these things. You cannot get there. 
There is but one way. It is the blood of Jesus that flowed down, that wiped away our sins. This joy, sorrow, and love flowed from him. We know that old song, when I surveyed the wondrous cross, the third verse says this, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? See, to the lost world, it they don't get that. They, they maybe go and see a movie and they let Hollywood tell them what the Bible has to say. Please never let that happen in your life. Hollywood is not in a place to tell you what the Bible has to say. But there's a movement. There's, there's some sorrow. There's, oh, that wasn't fair. But only from the believer can you look at sorrow and love and joy get mingled as that blood flows down from him. And it's simply because we know he's doing what we could not do and he's doing it for our sake. There's another side to this when people see Jesus that he often provokes wrath. You see it in this passage. I mean, teeth grinding wrath. He provokes that. Jesus does that. He, he said to his disciples, I did not bring you peace, I brought you a sword. My message of me will divide. He's very clear on that. Study it. I know in the Christian culture we say, oh, Jesus is love, 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 love. Yes, he is a love. He is the standard of love. But the message of Christ divides. It divides households. He comes and says, I am the only way. And in a world of of no absolutes anymore. That does not fly well. And so he provokes anger at times. He represents what they cannot believe and they refuse to believe, namely that they're sinners and they need a savior. That's a hard hurdle for you to overcome on your own. In fact, let me say this, you'll never overcome it on your own. It is a sovereign work of God. You won't get over it. You'll come up against it and you'll just keep saying, I'm not as bad as that next guy. See, it's a narrow gate, Jesus said, right? It's narrow. It's not a broad gate. It's not a gate that your baggage of good works can fit through. It's like those little narrow turnstiles at Disneyland. You can't even get a stroller through them. You just go through one at a time, bringing nothing. That's the narrow gate. That's Jesus alone, Christ alone, salvation alone, through grace alone, through faith alone. It's narrow. And, and this refusal of truth causes men, causes mankind to suppress the truth of Jesus in unrighteousness, all the while claiming their own righteousness should be and must be accepted by God in order to attain eternal life. And the result is they reject Jesus. And the death of Jesus ends up to be meaningless to the crowds of humanity and their leaders. And churches explode around the world with every religion imaginable with a sprinkling of Jesus in there in order to show you, hey, you're okay, do a few of these, give a few of that, be a good person and you're gonna get there. 
and the lie from the pit of hell continues. Some may experience sadness at the cruelty as you read a passage like this. It is definitely cruel. And we're just touching a little bit. There's, it's a narrative, member. It's not telling you everything that took place. In fact, there's words in the original language that we're not quite sure the depth of what they did to Jesus in those back rooms. But though some may see sadness when they see the passion for Christ or the new movie, Son of God, the bulk of humanity remains unchanged at the message of Jesus. It is only those that see a need for a savior who see him glorious, who read a passage like this and see his majesty. See, I read this and I go, oh Jesus, you are so, you are so majestic. You are so glorious. See, only changed hearts see that. Only changed hearts get around that and begin to say, oh, what they have done to my Lord. Oh, what I have done to my Lord. And he sets you free. And and, and something that's so sorrowful and so difficult as you read it becomes so joyful. How, How is that? How is it so joyful that we can sing with great joy in this building just for the last 45 minutes of Jesus dying for us? See, that doesn't make sense to the world. It's an anomaly. It's, it's, it just doesn't compute. But when your heart is changed and your mind is changed and, and now you see him glorious and, and you see yourself in such a need of Jesus, both for salvation and for daily life, he becomes glorious. In today's text, there seems to be no one who will stand with Jesus as he suffers alone. Jesus knew this would happen. He told his disciples, he was fulfilling prophecy that he would suffer alone. He is a picture, he is picturing completely Isaiah 53 in this text. He is suffering alone to redeem us from the curse. Look with me at three thoughts this morning. First of all, Pilate's cruel and feeble attempts to release Jesus. Notice in the first three verses that Pilate, after having Barabbas released versus Jesus, has him scourged. Your Bible may say flocked. Uh, it's, a, it's a term for beating. And the soldiers in verse two twist, twist a crown of thorns together and they put it on his head and they take a purple robe and they put that on him and they begin to, to mock him and say, hail king of the Jews and slap him and beat him physically. What's interesting about John here is John is the only book that we see that Jesus was scourged not in preparation for crucifixion, but in preparation for, so a pilot could release him. And do, you, do you catch that? See, Pilate, is, he, he's failed in his attempt to get Jesus released by the prisoner swap program. That didn't work. He thought for sure they're not going to let this murderous, guilty thief go free when I have told them, their great emperor, their great governor, that this man is innocent. The plan failed. They asked for Barabbas. So what he does is he will have Jesus scourged, flogged, and that's, those words are, are not words probably in our uh, alphabet or our vocabulary today as much as they were back then, but basically what it was was a long whip that was thronged, and so it had many t- 
tentacles to it, and on the end of that, they would tie pieces of bone or metal in that, and they would beat the victims um, horribly. It also says in the Bible that they twisted crowns of thorns. These thorns most likely came from a, play, came a thorny bush that was in the area. Long thorns, not just little small rose-type thorns, but long thorns. These were beaten to them. The other a gospel accounts say that they took a reed and beat that down into his head. They slapped him and beat him with their hands, the scripture tells us here. And they mocked him and ridiculed him and dressed him as a king. Most likely, the purple robe was a centurion high-ranking officer's robe that was put on him. And I do not want you to miss the point, but I don't want you to stay on this. It was a terrible beating. This was a frightening beating. This is something you never, never want to see done. But Pilate was trying to release him through this. He's trying to show that I can humiliate Jesus so badly that the people would have pity on him and I'll be able to release him. You ever heard that before? So I think most of the accounts when we look, we see that the beating comes afterwards and doubtlessly there was one there. But look how Luke says it. Just listen to you on time to turn there. Luke 23, recording these events, um, says this. Nor, he's Pilate speaking, nor has Herod, because remember he went to Herod, he, Pilate sent him to Herod. John doesn't record that, but he sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back and says, there's nothing deserving of death that I found in this man. Then Pilate says, therefore, I will punish him and release him. Luke records it too. Now he was obligated to release for them at the feast one of the prisoners, but they cried out saying, away from this, away with this man, release Barabbas. He was one that was in prison for insurrection, made in the city, and, and was a murderer. And Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. This is all in the Luke 23 account. But they kept calling out, saying, crucify him, crucify him. And he said to them a third time, why, what evil has this man done? I find no fault, no guilt in him, demanding of death. Therefore, I will punish him and I will release him, he says. That's why I said, Pilate's cruel and feeble attempt to release Jesus. I didn't didn't see that before. I've read this count, I don't know how many times. Somehow I missed that. They, that Pilate says, let me, let me beat him up. Let me dishonor him and disfigure him and, and derobe him so that he has no majesty, has nothing left, that he's no way a king before anybody. And then surely they will let him go. And I don't doubt, brothers and sisters, as we read the other accounts, that, uh, that after Jesus was sentenced to crucifixion, that he was beat again by the soldiers. And I can see that in the other accounts. One more thought in verse three before we move on. The soldiers mock him as a king of Jews. And I think one of the plots of Pilate was to display that this king, this so-called king is no threat. Remember, they were very prideful men, very arrogant men. They wanted no threats to their rule. And one of the ways that Pilate was trying to display to the Jews is, look, you think this guy's a threat? Look what I did to him. I've mocked him, beat him. Can you imagine what Jesus looked like by the time he got here? You stick not just one thorn, but many thorns into somebody's head where we seem to bleed a lot more from the head. Beat that down into him, punch him, mock him. And this is all just for the Romans, let alone what happened at Caiaphas. His face is probably so bloody and so swollen 
You think this is a king? See, he's trying to show, I've, I, this is no king. I've let him, I've conquered him. He's no threat. Look at verse four with me. Pilate came out again and said to them, behold, I bring him out to you so that you may know what, may know that I find no fault in him. And that's what he's doing. Pilate must have thought that by bringing Jesus out completely humiliated, beat to a pulp, that this would show that he found no fault in him and no substance for the charges leveled against him. This was ridiculous. You want to crucify this man? He says he's a king. Look, he's no king. Verse five, Jesus came out wearing this crown of thorns and this purple robe, and Pilate says, behold the man. Hmm. The very sight of Jesus ought to have been enough to demonstrate this and allow that Pilate release him. And notice the phrase, behold the man. It's a very interesting phrase used here. Um, certainly I think John inserts it where no one else does because I think John knew he was the capital letter man. I don't think Pilate does. Apostle Paul picks up on this terminology and says, for there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. But I don't think that's the way Pilate was thinking. In fact, several commentaries that I read, men um, much long gone from this earth wrote deeply on this. In fact, they would say that Pilate was using this as look at the poor creature. He's just a man. And I've conquered him. It seems Pilate is using the term in, in somewhat a con- condescending manner. Because this is your so-called king. It re- it's a reminder, though, that, and, and as I read this, and, and this is where I want to bring your attention to, it's a reminder that Jesus was, although fully God, he was fully man. He felt everything. Every saliva he wrapped away from his face. Every beating with the fists and hands he felt. He did not come as a God in flesh that was not tempted or suffered in the ways that man could be tempted and suffered. In fact, the Bible tells us just the opposite. He suffered in all ways. Was tempted in all ways that man could be. He's feeling everything done to him. And he suffered greatly. And and here's the thought. He's representing you and I. See, if he just came fully God and you tried to kill him, you could not kill him. He's fully God, right? How do you kill God? That's impossible. So he takes on flesh at birth. He, he's born of a woman, born under the law. He suffers on this earth as man suffers, but suffers greatly as his father judges him as though he, we, as though he committed our sins And he hangs on that cross so that he can represent mankind. We have to get that. He's representing you and I. He's not coming full in his deity and saying, look, I conquered death. I'm I'm full deity, but I'm fully man. And I'm representing Scott. I'm representing Bob. I'm representing every man, every person, every woman that has their faith in Jesus Christ. He's representing that person. He is our representative before God Almighty. And he can say, I suffered for that one. Don't miss it. 
It's just not some part of history where some cruelty took place. Notice verse six, the first part of it. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify, crucify. Though Pilate had been trying to win the crowds over to his way of thinking, he failed. It was a, it was a pitiful attempt. It was a cruel attempt. But nevertheless, he failed. And the calls for crucifixion began to rang out and get louder and louder. In fact, this is the first use of crucify by John And it doesn't just come from Jewish people. Notice who it's coming from. It's coming from the chief priests and their officers. This is what Jesus had told his disciples. He said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and raised on the third day. He told them that nine to 11 different times we find in the scripture. He told them that. And in this, and in our text this morning, this gang of religious thugs they waste no time to oppose Pilate and let, them, let him know that they, they want things done and they want Jesus done away. No matter how innocent Pilate thought Jesus was, his innocence did not change Pilate in the end. I want to just take you to one verse. I want you to get your finger on those ones. Everybody go to 2 Corinthians 5 with me. This is a verse that all of us need to commit to memory. This is a verse that you share the gospel with people. This is a verse that's a foundation to what we believe. And I don't want you to miss this in this sermon. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 reads this way. You know this verse. I quote it often. He, God, made him Christ. I'm giving you the personal pronouns of God and Christ here. He, God, made him Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. See, that's what's taking place in this text. Christ is being judged as though he had committed our sins. Isn't that what this verse says? Paul said this to the Corinthian church. He made God, made him, Jesus, who who was sinless, as innocent, proclaimed by the justice system of the day but more importantly, proven through a sinless life and that we could be saved through him, that person, he made him to be sin on our behalf. He, he, think about this. He pressed and bore down on his own son everything you and I had done, all the sin we had committed, pressed it upon him and judged him as though he committed it. But the verse doesn't end there, brothers and sisters. The second half is just as glorious as glorious as the first half. So that we, the we is a personal pronoun to the believers. So that we, you and I, who will put our faith in Jesus, might become the righteousness of God in him. That's Christ Jesus. So that when God looks at you, he sees you dressed in the righteous robes of Jesus. That's what lets you into the kingdom of God for eternity. That's the only way you can pass through the pearly gates. You must be dressed in the robes of Jesus. There is no other way. We love this verse because it sums up the gospel. I beg you to commit that verse to memory if you have not already. Use that verse to share with others the great work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our second thought today comes back to the text in John 
in verses 6 through 11, the Jews officially reject Jesus and Pilate's mistaken authority. Notice back in our text, the second half of part of 6, after they cry out, crucify him, Pilate says to them, take him yourself and crucify him. For I find no guilt, no fault. He's innocent in this man. This statement from the Jews, crucify, crucify, um, just lays the guilt of Christ on them. They, they're, they're murderers. They've broken countless commands just in what they were doing. They have rejected not only the way God officially has presented the way of salvation, they've rejected God himself. And it's not forgotten in the scriptures. Look with me in the book of Acts just real quick. I'm gonna take you through a quick turn through the book of Acts. The, the apostles don't forget this. Who's to be blamed at some level? Not, not, not saying that the apostles didn't, didn't believe that Jesus died for their sins and, they, and, and the result of his death was because of their sin, but they don't forget what's happening here. Acts chapter two, verse 23. You might just jot these down. For sake of time, I'll read them fairly quickly. The Bible says this. This is Peter preaching in the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church. He says this. This man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. So ultimately go, well, he'll who killed Jesus? Mm, God did. Some level, right? The predetermined foreknowledge of God. But notice, man is responsible for his sin. You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. See, the apostles didn't forget what took place here. There is a responsibility of man. Though God had this planned, and we're going to see that as we go on in our text, God planned this. God has put all this together. This was God's plan from the beginning. Um, Mark calls it the gospel of God. Man is responsible for sin. See, there's always a sovereign aspect to God in all things, but there's also responsibility of man. He's responsible for his sin. Notice as we go down through um, the book of Acts, chapter three, verse 10, across the page. And they were taking note of him as being one who used to sit at the beautiful gate in the temple and begging for arms. That is not the verse I want. Um, Where'd that go? Sometimes you write things in your notes. You don't know why you wrote them there. Um, there is a verse in chapter 3 that says, look, man, man has put him to, to death. Look at chapter 5. <coughs> I think I got this one right at least. Chapter 5, 29 through 30. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had put to death and hanging him on a cross. Speaking to the religious rulers, the Pharisees, those that were ruling in that day. Chapter 7, verse 52, this is uh, Stephen, at, right before they stoned him to death, said this in chapter 7, verse 52, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute it? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. See, this doesn't get brushed over. Chapter 10, verse 39, these men are guilty. 10, verse 39, Peter speaking 
with Cornelius and seeing the vision of, of the freedom in Christ that was coming to him, saying, verse 10, verse 39, said, we are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. No, they also did this. Uh, Paul gets into the mix, Acts chapter 13, and I'll just in with this one, but for those, verse 27, for those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers rec- uh, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath. You didn't listen to Jesus and you didn't listen to the Old Testament is what they're saying, Paul's saying. Fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. See, God doesn't miss this stuff. And sometimes we as Christians want justice, right? Sometimes we don't see it on this earth, but God doesn't miss anything. When those men cried out, crucify him, they put themselves under the judgment hand of God. And today they wait in judgment for that great white throne of judgment that is coming. Look with me back at the end of verse six. It says, take him yourself and crucify him for I find no guilt on him. It's fascinating words um, that Pilate has here. You can see him, he's, he's actually frustrated with them. He's, he's upset with them and he uses an, an emphatic contrast. He uses yourself and I, these two pronouns here, in an emphatic way. In essence, Pilate is saying that he wants nothing to do with this. And in Luke, he says, the blood is on your hand. And they said, the blood will be on our hand and our children's children and on. He doesn't want anything to do with this. And remember, his wife had come to him somewhere in this, this events going on and said, look, I had a dream. Don't mess with this guy. He says, do it yourself, in essence. But the Jews could not crucify Jesus. Their only method of execution was what? Stoning. They want him crucified. Why? Why not take him and just kill him yourself? Why? Have you ever thought about that? Just take him out, go outside the city, and stone him. They want him cursed. Do you see how deeply this is? Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. They knew that Old Testament passage. We want him cursed. We want him shown as example that you don't make yourself out to be equal with God. Verse seven says exactly that. The Jews answered, we have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. At least they heard right. How many times did Jesus said, I am the son of God. I have come from the father. He is my father. The father and I are one over and over. And particularly, think about this, in a Jewish mindset, Hebrew mindset, the son, the firstborn son has full equality to his father. Everything the father has, everything the son has. It's full equality. To them, they were going, he is making himself out to be God. And that's what he was. And it drove them crazy. And they based this whole thing on Leviticus 24, uh, 16. That, that you should, he, he, no one can make themselves out to be the son of God. Now it's fascinating. Look at 8, eight 9 here. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Now what's going on here? Why is, why is Pilate all of a sudden scared? What's causing this fear in him? See, he, he's reasoning now. He starts to think. Remember, he has a pantheistic view of gods. 
He actually believes that, that gods can take on um, human flesh, that there's divine men that walk on the face of the earth. They believed in the first Roman century of, of life that, that royalty was deity. See, he believes this stuff. And, and, and then couple that with him going, I've heard about this guy. He's raised people from the dead. He's healed people. He's fed thousands of people. I've heard about this guy. I may be dealing with little g, a god. I think that's what's going through his head there. And I think he's nervous. And I think he's to the point, he says, wow, I, I need to check this out. And he walks in and he says, who are you? Where are you from? Could this be true of you? Notice the Bible says that Jesus gave him no answer. And this is every account in the gospel records that. And he is the sheep in Isaiah 53 that is led before the slaughter. And before his shearers, he is silent and he did not open his mouth. Pilate, in verse 10, responds to Christ's silentness. He says, do you know do you, do you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Clearly, Pilate doesn't like this lack of response. He goes, look, I, I, you don't know who I am. I'm a powerful man. I can, move, I can move my hand and people die, and I can put my hand down and people live. Do you know who I am? And Jesus' response in 11 is, Amazing, and, and I'm gonna read this to you, but these are the last words Pilate ever hears from Jesus, recorded. Here's Jesus' last words to Pilate. He had to go to his grave hearing these last words. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Jesus corrects Pilate's Mistaken authority. You do not have this. It has been given by God to you to rule. Someone asked me the other day, how does God work through voting and all of that? I said, people are in office because he votes for them. Whether you like them or not, he voted for them. They're there. Romans 13.1 says, every person to be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. God does amazing things. In his plan, he knew he'd raise up this little boy, this little Roman boy who'd become a powerful man. He would be the governor of the time. He would convict Jesus and sentence him to death. This was all in God's plan. He would not be there if God would not have put him there. And if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, just think about that for a little while. He causes all things to work together. Circle that word all. He misses nothing. And he who delivered me has the greatest sin. That's an interesting little phrase there. And I think Pilate ran with this a little bit. And I, and I don't know who you think that is. Here's my thoughts on it. I don't think it's Judas because Judas didn't deliver Jesus directly to Pilate. I think he's talking about the chief priest. I think he's talking about Caiaphas and all of his little cronies. And I think that he came away from this and Pilate felt maybe a little better. Ooh, well, if he's a God, maybe I won't be in his biggest trouble. Notice point three, the judgment of Jesus exposes the true hearts of all involved. Look at verse 12, as a result, Pilate made efforts to release him. 
He thinks, okay, I, it's not on me. Maybe these guys will see this. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. So verse 12, something Jesus, he, something he answered, some way he answered this made Pilate feel maybe less guilty and, and, and wanted to engage to try to get this half-hearted attempt to release him. But the Jews maintained a very contentious uh, uh, battle, didn't they? They, they? they developed this contention between Jesus and Caesar is what they're doing. They're manipulating him. In a sense, they're saying that they are correct because they could, they could never have Christ share equality with Caesar. They're saying he, he's not equal, so if you, if you let him go, you're going to oppose Caesar. Um, and this is going to cause a problem because this man, back in chapter 8, verse 37, said he's a king. And so if you're going to let him go, then you're going to have problems with Caesar. You could see the wheels turning in this man going, Oh, this could not be good. All this needs to happen is if I release Jesus, they could bring damaging, accusing arguments to, against me in Rome, and I'm going to be in trouble, and I'm going to lose all that I have. And so Pilate, though he seems personal, has, seems to have personal feelings to release Jesus, his love of self, his self-preservation is far greater than the love for Jesus. Verse 13, Therefore when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and he sat, him, sat down on the judgment seat. Now he's there. He's about, this is when he passes sentence. And it's a place called the pavement in Hebrew, uh, Gabbatha. And so Pilate got the message. He understands the Jews have manipulated him. They put him between Caesar and Jesus. He knows who writes his check. And so he sits down on this judgment seat to pass verdict. And in 14, it's the Passover and it's the mid-morning hour, and he makes a statement, behold your king. I could preach a whole other sermon on verse 14. I'll just give you some thoughts towards it. It's Passover. The lamb has been with them. The lamb has lived among them. The lamb is from the family. He's Jewish. And now the lamb is selected to die. Boy, don't miss that in that passage. That's all there. It's Passover. Behold your king. John the Baptist said this, behold the lamb of God who takes away the world. He's, in essence, Pilate does not understand what he's doing, but in a sense he's saying, here's your lamb. Here's the Passover lamb. See, I don't think John wants us to miss that. And I, want, I think John wants us to know that he is not only a lamb, he's a king. And he's not only just a king, he's a king of kings. He's a lord of lords, and every knee will bow before him. And so I think there's some irony here as only John records this. Behold your king. And believe me, even though they reject him, they still will bow to him someday, these very men who put him to death. Verse 15 so they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And at the very mention that Jesus is their king, their murderous hearts just begin to cry out, kill him. And Pilate makes one more empty attempt and he says, shall I crucify your king? And from their own lips, they condemn themselves and they break everything they believed in the scriptures and they say, look, we don't have a king, but Caesar. And you go, how do you know that, Scott? 
There's four main texts that they prayed and held to. I'll give them very quick to you. Judges 8.23, it was about Gideon who rejected. He says, I will not be your king. Either my sons will be your king. Only the Lord is your king. Uh, Judges 8.23, 1 Samuel 8, verse 7. They want a king just like the rest of the world. Oh, give us a king. Give us a man king. And God says to Samuel, they have not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me. I should be their only king. They believe this. They saw their fall and why God brought judgment on them, and they've, and they've gone away from these things. Psalms 149.2, they prayed this psalm. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the sons of Zion rejoice in their king. Isaiah 33.22, another, psalm, another uh, song they prayed. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. And then they had a prayer book. that 18 benedictional prayers that they prayed every day. The 11th said this, you may be our king, that you may be our king, you alone, God. They broke it all. They broke it all. And then verse 16, it says this, so they then handed him over to them to be crucified. I don't think there's a mistake that John wrote it this way because I think John saying, look, you bear the guilt of this. We all know the Romans carried out the crucifixion, but Jesus was be delivering over to the will of the Jews. Luke writes it this way. He says in Luke 23, 25, and he released the man they were asking for and had been thrown in prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Boy, that's guilt. Let me close with this. Last question you see it on your notes. Who's your king? See, Pilate had a dilemma. What should we do with him they call Jesus the Christ? Matthew 27, 22, he had a dilemma. There's two choices, and, and, and Pilate had that, and man has that. You have two choices. You either stand with those who reject and crucify Jesus and face eternal damnation, that's one choice because there's no other choice here. There's, a, there, there's only a broad road, the Bible says, that leads to destruction, and then there's a narrow road. There isn't a little tunnel in between. Or you acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior and be saved. There's only, it's only two roads. So who's your king? Who's your king? The Bible says this, Romans 10, verses 9 and 11. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, faith leads to righteousness. Faith in Jesus alone. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scriptures say, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Though you may die, terrible death. Though they stone you, kill you, drag you through the mud, you will never be disappointed in Jesus Christ if you're a true believer. And you say, well, I believe that. Would you believe what Jesus said after that type of statement? Luke chapter 9, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me daily. See, I think a lot of people go and see a movie called Son of God and they go, I, I believe that happened. There's a difference between a cerebral belief and a belief that transfers from the mind to the heart that captures you and you die daily to self and say, Lord, I have nothing in my hand. There's nothing that I cling to. I have nothing. I'm coming to you empty-handed and I put my faith in you and I'm, I'm willing to walk with you. As feeble as I am, as weak as I am, I'm willing to walk with you every day. That's the saved person. 
that's following Jesus. Whoever wishes to save his own hide, his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will be saved. Who's your king? Who's on your heart this morning? Who has the throne room? Jesus or self? Who is it? You must ask yourself that. Confess him as your Lord and Savior. Make him, make him the throne. Give him all of it. Give him your job, your wife, your house, your, your husband, your children. Give them all. Say, you're a king. I will go with you. Whatever you want to do, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to be weak at times, God. I'm, I'm going to have a lack of trust in your times, but I want to go with you. Help me follow you. Help me walk with you. And he will answer that prayer. Father, here he is. He's our Lord. He's condemned by Pilate. And the murderous leaders are crying out for his brutal execution. And he's silent. He could call 10,000 angels right then, Lord. They could have wiped out everyone in thousands of miles, Lord. Leveled the whole place. And he could have went back to heaven totally justified. But he didn't. He had a perfect plan and was to rescue us, Lord. Father, wicked men will find all kinds of things to be king in their life. Even some good, noble, society-pleasing things, Lord. But there's only one king who can save us. It's King Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray this morning you would burden us to make sure he is on our throne of our hearts, that we haven't just liked Jesus or think that he is a good idea, but that he is our Lord and our Savior. And we're willing to die daily and follow him. Give us strength. Lord, I pray for those in this room, Lord, that are wrestling with that or those that might be hearing this in some other means. They're wrestling with whether they are truly saved, truly born-again believers. They're, they're wrestling with the fact that you could show up any time and they don't know if they belong to you. Lord, I pray you save them right now. Right now, Lord. Give them an understanding. Draw them to yourself. Father, I pray for us lazy Christians that sometimes we let other things Opinions and our own way we think life should be run rob us from letting the glory of Christ rule in our hearts. Lord, may even a sermon like this convict us to let Jesus rule and reign. I pray that you would help us, Lord. We are feeble. We are faint-hearted at times. But we lay our lives before you, knowing you love us and you were condemned for us so we could wear your righteous robes. We praise you for that. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.